Hey everybody, Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm a research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast. And uh, the Greek meaning of the word evangelist is bringing the good news. So I like to think I'm bringing the good news in cancer research by interviewing people in life sciences who are what I call brilliant but not famous. And well, many of them are famous, but certainly they're all well-known and respected in their fields and the communities that they serve. So I'm super excited about today's uh, episode, and I'm happy to welcome Dr. Priti Hegde, who joined Foundation Medicine as the Chief Scientific Officer in August of 2019, after 12 years at Genentech. Foundation Medicine offers a portfolio of comprehensive genomic profiling products that help physicians make more informed care decisions. And Dr. Hegde uh, oversees clinical product development, cancer genomics, and early stage research, as well as regulatory and quality assurance to accelerate advancement of the company's genomic profiling products. She's passionate about innovation and cancer research and translating innovations to precision medicine tools to advance care for patients. And I love that. So uh, Dr. Hegde, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. And may I just say, uh, thank you for all that you do for patients. I think spreading the word and education is pretty much 70 to 80% of patient care and you provide that for our patients. So thank you so much for doing this. Oh my gosh, right back at you. The community really loves the work that you're doing as well. So uh, did I miss anything uh, in introducing who you are? (laughs) No, that was spot on. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you. As people know, uh, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a lung cancer survivor, so I'm super interested in precision medicine and lung cancer, as well as other uh, other cancers. But um, and I do believe that every patient deserves genomic testing. You know, I, I've I've talked a lot about this. You know, seven biomarkers now uh, for non-small cell lung cancer have targeted treatments available, and I just think that is remarkable. And the progress that we've made in the past five years to ten years, but really just in the last few years, it just seems like it's constantly changing. So. Um, it's really exciting field, and uh, we'll dig into you know the work that Foundation Medicines is doing um, in terms of getting genomic testing. Um, so let me just start by saying, you know, today many patients don't get you know, comprehensive genomic testing until after they've had a failed uh, previous treatment, um, and they may have more limited opportunity to benefit from any targeted therapy or immunotherapy options uh, from the report. So, how can the approach change? So so that doctors and their patients can find out uh, about the best potential treatment options sooner. Yeah, um, there's a couple of layers to this um, dilemma, Dave. So first of all, let's start out by saying that particularly where lung cancer is concerned, lung cancer really was that poster child disease uh, that informed precision medicine and really shaped precision medicine in oncology. One of the first alterations or mutations that was discovered in lung cancer that was EGFR was discovered in in the 2000s. So not that, you know, not that long ago. Um, And today, when we look at the various targeted therapies that are available in lung cancer, whether it's EGFR inhibitors, inhibitors to ALK translocations, inhibitors to next generation EGFR um, uh, mutations, it behooves us to ensure that every patient gets a genomic profiling test before they get on to, you know, what commonly happens today is as soon as a patient is diagnosed with lung cancer, they get on to a chemotherapy and immunotherapy uh, combination. The challenge with that is that 
immunotherapies tend not to work in patients who in fact indeed have alterations in EGFR and ALK translocation. So right off the bat, if you have an alteration in these, in these, um, in these genes, you're less likely to benefit from that standard of care of chemotherapy and immunotherapy, which means all the more reason that you need to get tested. But testing today isn't that well entrenched. And it's really hard to understand why. First of all, tests are reimbursed. Tests like the foundation one test, let's put it this way. Regulated tests that have an FDA approval are reimbursed by health insurance companies. So it's not for it's not a, a financial reason for why you wouldn't want to get tested. Every patient that comes in and gets diagnosed with lung cancer does get a biopsy. In the case of lung cancer, approximately 20 to 30% of the patients have um, difficulty, difficulties in being biopsy, but you have the ability to now get a blood draw and get a test done through blood as well. So whether it's the availability of blood or tumor tissue, it is critically important for us to ensure that patients get next-gen sequencing or what we call comprehensive genomic profiling done either on their blood sample or on their tumor biopsy to ensure that they do not have one of those targeted alterations that we just talked about. And if you don't have those, then for sure, go on chemotherapy, immunotherapy. Those drugs tend to work better in patients who do not have specific uh, targeted alterations to begin with. So that is the right treatment regimen. Um, education of oncologists is really important, particularly in the community setting, but I would say in, in the academic medical setting as well, I think it's really important that oncologists be educated on the value that CGP or comprehensive genomic profiling provides for their patients. Uh, patients need to be educated so they can ask their oncologist, hey, have you considered this for me. Um, both of those things are really important to ensure that the patient gets the right treatment option that's tailored to their specific um, disease fingerprint or molecular fingerprint. Yeah, we've come a long way uh, for sure in, in having the availability of these tests, but how are we doing in the community setting? I know I, know I was treated at Mass General Hospital, uh, which is a major academic center. Uh, I'm sure not all academic centers are are doing enough testing either, but how are we doing the community setting where, where many patients are treated? You know, there within the community setting, again, there are the large community oncology practices. Uh, we have a partnership with uh, a practice called One Oncology, um, where, you know, they see thousands of patients and they have the ability to uh, make genomic profiling more uh, readily available for patients. So Foundation Medicine, for example, has a partnership with One Oncology to provide these testings, uh, testing options for patients. But then there are also those remote community services where um, outreach is really important for us. And I'm hoping that avenues like what you're putting together here with this podcast provides that outreach service for uh, community hospitals, particularly in more remote areas to provide this service for patients. Now with Foundation Medicine, for example, we are a central testing service. And what that means is you just need to provide a, a tumor biopsy or a blood sample to us, and we will take care of the testing and providing the report back to an oncologist or a patient. So it's not like you need, need a lab system uh, or a lab structure in place in these hospitals to make these testing um, options available for patients. That's not the case. It really has to do with um, uh, the desire of the oncologist and the patient to, to 
uh, avail patients of these options for them. Yeah, how, how do you have an idea or estimate of how many how many people that are newly diagnosed that are actually getting the you know the next gen testing? Today, as of uh, last year, we've managed to increase it a little bit to about 25% of patients get uh, comprehensive genomic profiling. Um, a lot of the hospitals today still do single gene profiling. And what that means is you get a biopsy from a patient and uh, local labs that are present in the hospitals will profile a single gene at a time, okay, from these biopsies. What that does is it depletes the biopsy of DNA. Now, tumor biopsy is incredibly precious. It is an incredibly precious resource because that is your molecular fingerprint that allows your oncologists, allows diagnostic providers to really truly define what is the driver of your disease. Depleting that material is a shame. Uh, doing single gene testing is a shame because we have the ability to profile hundreds of genes with the same amount of material that a local lab would use a single gene testing um, platform on. So I think we've got to shift the mindset of um, local labs to go from single gene testing one at a time to multiple gene testing or comprehensive genomic profiling. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. How, how long does it generally take to get the results? Um, so generally, from the time a biopsy enters into a facility, it takes about, on average, ten days for you to get your result back. Yeah, that's I. That's I mean, that's that's great. But I, I know a friend of mine um, a few years ago. He was a non-smoker, young guy, um, who's healthy, played lacrosse in college, and he went in because he was having a kind of a nagging cough and he didn't think anything of it, of course, but, and, you know, they, he ultimately found out that he had stage four lung cancer. And so they immediately put him on chemotherapy right. and it set him into like being on a ventilator and being super sick. And then they ultimately did find out that he had the EGFR mutation and then they switched him to Tarceva. And I think that, you know, it helped him, but it was too late. So I wonder that window of time, you know, obviously, that seems like it's a sense of urgency sometimes with some of these patients. It's critically important to do the right thing first. Um, if you look at EGFR therapies, for example, as of last year at uh, the annual Society of Clinical Oncology or ASCO conference, uh, there was data presented on the efficacy of EGFR inhibitors at early disease, what we call adjuvant disease setting, where a patient comes in gets surgical resection and immediately goes on an EGFR inhibitor. And the benefit of uh, getting the right therapy straight after surgery is so great, which again, um, emphasizes the need for the right treatment option right from the get-go. Yeah, I, I often you know, talk about precision medicine and you know, and targeted therapies and how hard it must be for oncologists just to keep up to date on all the things that are happening. And, and so I never, I don't say to say bad things about oncologists. I, I just feel like I'm coming from a patient perspective. So I speak, you know, loud and proud, you know, because of a lot of friends of mine have stage four lung cancer. So you know, I'm always, you know, trying to, you know, to rant about the fact that everybody should get tested. If only 25% of people are getting tested. That seems like a shame to me. I and mean, it feels like they're actually, people can, be, lives can be saved. Yeah, right? absolutely. 
these are life altering therapies. You know? well, that must be, that must be, that, I bet that's exciting for you to, you know, to think that your work has that kind of an impact, you know, where you literally can be saving people's lives by uh, providing this uh, profiling. Absolutely. And that's what drives us to, to work. I mean, this is a passion for me. It is a passion for the colleagues that I work with. You know, this is why we come into work. Turns out today is a national happy day at work. Uh, I didn't even know that was a thing, but turns out that is what it is today. And as I was reading through it, I, I went, why do we need a national happy work day? I mean, every day at work has to be happy. And when you do what we do here with respect to, you know, trying as much as we can to help cancer patients. Every day is so important. Patients don't have time. Um, technology is evolving fast. Science is evolving fast. So how do we get that rapid scientific innovation to patients sooner is really what drives us to do what we do. Yeah, I, I can see that because I read a lot about your company. And you know, I, I talk to other advocates and, and they, we talk about how we should be shouting from the mountaintops of all the advancements that have been happening in the past few years um, in cancer and lung cancer um, research treatments. So I, I'd like to know what you think about, um, you know, how genomic testing can evolve to help more earlier stage cancer patients, not just the advanced stage cancer patients. Yeah. Um... Therapies are moving to earlier settings now. Like I said, at ASCO last year, there was data presented on EGFR inhibitors in early disease. And by early disease, we mean disease that is still localized and hasn't metastasized to a secondary organ or a distant organ. Uh, stage four disease tends to represent that, uh, that evolution of disease from the primary organ site to a distant site. Um, but today, patients are getting diagnosed earlier um, and that allows us an option to initiate treatment opportunities earlier in patients. And what we're seeing is that the faster you catch disease and the faster you treat the underlying cause of the disease, the greater the, the, um, the propensity or the greater the probability of what we call cure. And cure is a word that in cancer is very um, cautiously spoken about, but we're at a at a stage with our technologies and our science and our therapies, by the way, and the drugs that we're developing, that allows us to think about that, that allows us to think about curative regimens, uh, whether it's immunotherapies and having the ability to mount, use your own immune system to mount an anti-cancer defense mechanism. These types of therapies have the potential to be curative if you catch the disease at the right time, make sure that you understand what drives that disease through molecular profiling, and then go on the right treatment regimen. I think the profiling with the right treatment partner, those two things are a partnership. You can't just go on, oh, I'm diagnosed with cancer, let's get on chemo. That's not how things should work. We understand disease so well now that it behooves us to use that understanding to inform what the treatment paradigm needs to be. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting that you use the word cure and how we're always kind of careful about how we, we, we throw that word around because, you know, what does a cure really mean? But I had a conversation, uh, uh, a recent episode of my podcast with um, a radiation oncologists, and we, we had a little back and forth about talking about cures and how, you know, in radiation, you know, they see that as like, if I can get it, you know, it, it can be, an, you know, an actual cure. But he did mention you know, even from his perspective, this notion of how do we translate what we've learned in the late stage 
you know, to an earlier stage, particularly, and I'm talking about lung cancer, right? And we know that the challenge is because of screening and, you know, the, you know, many times it's, it's, it's found at a later stage. You know, I, I had pneumonia twice. So, um, and I was lucky that, that my tumor was not aggressive. And so, you know, I was fortunate to have a little back to me, you know, and, and be, and be done with it. But I think we're all on the same page and trying to figure out how do we get people diagnosed yeah. earlier, right? Yeah. And then how and do we, yeah. Yeah. We're at a stage where we're really trying to understand that, um, uh, dynamic of tumor growth and tumor death in the early in the early disease setting. And what I mean by that is um, for us to be able to diagnose and detect cancer in blood, cancers need to shed their DNA in blood. Cancers shed their DNA in blood through a process called cell death, right? When the cell dies, it just dumps a whole bunch of its material out into blood, and that's how you can detect a signal in blood. Now, different cancers have different rates of growing and dying. And it is that mix of cell growth and cell death. It is, a, a, I would say, a mathematical equation of cell growth and cell death that when you, you have to take into account both of these features that allows you to say, yes, in lung cancer, this is our probability of detecting lung cancer in blood versus detecting breast cancer in blood versus detecting bladder cancer in blood. They have their, they have really different rates of growth and death, which informs our ability to detect the signal in blood, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so we're still at that very early stage of really understanding that biology of cell growth and cell death to develop technologies that allows us to um, detect cancer early enough in blood. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that liquid biopsy has always been something, you know, since I think I kind of got excited about it like five years ago and I was reading like, like Bert Vogelstein and Dan Haber and, and some of that research that was being done. It's cited, you know, I'm not a scientist. I was, you know, full disclosure, but um, yeah, how, how do tissue testing and liquid biopsy testing complement each other today? And, and what do you think that might look like or change in the future? Yeah, I think they're really highly complementary. Uh, for example, you know, we've developed a tissue test and an equivalent blood test. And what I mean by equivalent is we're looking at the same genes that we do in tissue. We're looking at the same genes in blood. So we have the ability to monitor patients irrespective of whether a patient provides us with a tissue sample or a blood sample. We have to have the ability to look at the same content and monitor that content over time to see how does that disease evolve which of, the, which of the mutations disappear, which of the mutations occur at different time points so that we can provide the right therapeutic options for patients at different times during the growth uh, evolution of their tumor. Now, um, the way, what's important? I think both of these are important. When, when a patient gets diagnosed with cancer and goes through surgery, there's an abundance of tissue available. So tissue then becomes the first um, uh, DNA, source of DNA for testing, for genomic testing for a patient. Uh, it does two things. One is we know that there's ample tumor presence. So the signal that we can derive from the tumor is robust. And the result that we get from the tumor biopsy is of high confidence. Why? Because we just have a lot more DNA from the tumor that allows us to measure the genes with a great degree of confidence. Once a patient goes through surgery and the tumor is removed from their body, um, you now all that's available to you is blood to detect that signal in blood. So what we're looking at in blood now is an on-off switch marker. 
at what point in blood are you now starting to see the signal arise again? And that's what we call um, minimal residual disease indication, an indicator that tells you that, well, maybe the surgery wasn't done completely enough and that there, is a, there are a few tumor cells that are still left behind and you can detect those in blood. So that's one. Uh, second is that, well, surgery probably was done really well, tumor's gone, but at, certain, at a certain time point, maybe two months later, three months later, six months later, five years later, you start to see, see the signal arise again in blood. And we have the ability to detect that, that uh, rise in signal in blood with the technologies that we have available today. Um, so that's called monitoring of, of uh, a tumor signal in blood. So you can do that um, with uh, technologies that allow you to identify your fingerprint in the tumor and you develop a bespoke test that then allows you to monitor that fingerprint in blood over time. So we see the application of a tumor biopsy and a blood specimen as mutually um, congruent to one another, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's great. That's, yeah, that, that this idea, and that's when I first started reading about liquid biopsy, it was like, you can actually, as you're treat, as a patient is going through treatment, you can actually take new blood draws to see what's different, what has changed, like or what, right? right? So right. And, and that informs the decision that the, the that the team makes. Right, and tumors are not static. Um, tumors evolve. The genomics of a tumor evolves over time, and we, we've uh, generated enough data now in the public domain and in literature to give us a whole degree of respect on the plasticity of tumor cells um, and how these tumors evolve over time. So we have the ability now to leverage that information to say, well, you've got to now switch from an EGFR inhibitor to an inhibitor X, Y, or Z based on the evolution or the growth of different clones in the tumor. And you can detect that clonal evolution of the tumor in blood fairly easily today. Yeah, it's so exciting. The whole field, I, I, you know, as I've mentioned, I'm super passionate about precision medicine uh, and lung cancer. And I, I look at um, where are we going for the future, right? So. What are you most excited about that we might see becoming available to cancer patients within maybe the next year or two, you know, whether it's related to the work of foundation medicine, you know, or in general? Um, there's a couple of things. So one is, you know, I always say this, that diagnostics are as good as therapeutics are meaning we need great therapeutic options for patients to make diagnostics relevant for patients. And so one of the things that we do at Foundation Medicine is uh, we work with uh, pretty much most of the major drug developers to say, hey, these are partnerships between us and drug developers where we say, how can we get the best treatment regimen for our patients based on their molecular fingerprints? And so, you know, as you look at what we've done with Foundation One CDX, for example, which is our tissue test, we have 28 different diagnostic claims on our Foundation One CDX test. What that means is that if you get a, a Foundation One CDX test, you have the ability to look for those 28 markers and say, hey, if I have one of those 28, I have the ability to get treatment A, B, or C based on, on, on the signal for that marker. And we have been able to do that with our partnerships with drug developers, which we think is central to providing the best option for patients. Me providing a test to you saying, oh, you have an alteration in gene A, 
but by the way, there are no therapeutic options for you. What are you going to do with that information? So we want to be able to provide information to you that you can act upon, that can actually make a difference to your, to your quality of life. And that's really been our mission is to inform treatment decisions for patients. That's really important. So that's one thing that we're doing. Second is we, uh, we have a partnership with a sister company called Flatiron Health. Flatiron Health has um, large amounts of patient outcomes data. So when patients come in and they get a foundation one test, they have the ability to get uh, an associated outcomes data through the Flatiron Health database. And the ability to combine genomic data with outcomes data is precious in informing um, what we call treatment decision insights for patients. And we use these two databases together to say, what more can we learn from these data to really help us determine what the right treatment options are for patients. And these can go beyond just the, uh, the companion diagnostics or the diagnostic claims that we have listed on our uh, Foundation One medical report today. So that's sort of where we see our future going is really informing clinical decisions for patients based on large amounts of data that we've generated at Foundation Medicine and at Flatiron Health, combine the two to provide the best treatment option for you as an individual. You know, when you look at clinical trials today, these are population-based data, right? Clinical trials are generally 1,000 patients, 2,000 patients. And the inclusion criteria for these clinical trials are such that not every patient that comes into an oncologist's clinic would qualify to be included in those trials. So what we're trying to do is say, look, I mean, less than 1% of cancer patients today in the United States are part of those clinical trials. And our job at Foundation Medicine is to help inform the rest of the 99% of the patients. So how do we use real world data? That's data from the real world setting, whether it's in the community clinics, whether it's in academic medical centers, how do we use that information to inform the right treatment decision for you as the 99% versus the 1%? That's so cool. It, you know, it's, it's really interesting that you know, I've read about your collaborations with, um, with, the, with some of the pharma companies, most, many of the uh, big pharma companies, which I think is cool. I, I love, I'm all about collaboration, right? And I feel like, you know, we're on this together, right? I mean, we, yeah. you know, there's competition, of course, but um, we're, we're, we're really all trying to do what you just described. In fact, I just had Patrick Lilly from Liquid Bioscience on my, on my show last week. And he was talking a little bit about the, the work that, you know, with Flatiron and with Foundation Medicine. So, um, again, I, I'm not a data expert and I, I don't claim to be, but but he was saying very much the same thing um, and, and how those collaborations can really um, help uh, have a huge impact on, on the, the percentage of people that you're talking about. So um, I, I look at things you, you talked about just for the next year or two, but, but what's, you know, what's your vision for how an advanced cancer patient will receive testing and treatment, say five years from now or 10 years from now? Who can't even think about 10 years, but how about five years? Gosh, I really hope that not even five years, I really hope that we can really move the needle on the number of patients who get genomic profiling done. There is enough data in the epidemiological setting to demonstrate the value of genomic profiling based treatment decisions. It's a no brainer. Um, why do we still have this hurdle is something that we really need to understand as a community. And we're talking about the United States here, which 
you know, if testing in the United States is an issue, you can imagine the rest of the world. Um, so we've got to move the needle on genomic profiling. Where we as diagnostic providers are doing everything we can, David, to make sure that this is not a financial burden on patients. But it's now up to oncologists and patients to make sure that they get it, that they get this testing done and use that information from the tests to make the right decision for them. So that's my first hope. Second is, um, we're at a place where we really want to understand, you know, cancer is now turning into a chronic disease, right? And that's great. So what we've got to do, and I look at it as really partnering with the patient on the patient journey. This is not about one snapshot in time. You provide me with your tumor tissue, I give you a medical report and we're done, relationship closed. This has to be a relationship for life. Um, I want to be able to partner with every patient through their journey, through their cancer journey, so that we can help them build that map together with them. I kind of look at it as a Google map where, you know, you're at point A, I can help you to get from point A to point B through multiple ways. And I can actually draw those multiple ways today with outcomes data, with genomic profiling data. And those landmarks change as your you know, based on where your disease is, how did you respond to your frontline therapy? Uh, if you responded well, let's monitor to make sure that your cancer is under check. Once the cancer and if the cancer does rise up again, which we can monitor with blood, we have tools that we've developed at foundation where we can actually monitor disease over time in blood. Let's talk, let's, let's now look at your genomic fingerprint again and say what's changed. Based on what's changed, we can now draw the map and say, all right, we've now got to switch from therapy A to therapy B. So you can actually build that map together. And I'd love for this to be a relationship versus a one-time only transaction. And I think that's where the field is going to be moving over time is partnering through the journey versus um, a one-stop, one-stop exercise. You know, that's such a great point. I, I, as a patient advocate, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm working with metadata, you know, and what we call the patient-driven design team and, and working with some trial sponsors on, you know, how do we improve the patient experience? And there's a lot of talk about, you know, that relationship with, you know, with the patient. What does that look like? And it seems like there's always been, again, from my perspective as a patient, it, it's all this sort of regulatory concerns and, you know, talking to the patients and all that kind of stuff. So from foundation medicine standpoint, how does that, what does that look like, you know, with your, like your literal interaction with, with, um, with patients as we, as you, as you describe this going into the future? Yeah. Um, I will say that patients are so much more educated today, Dave, look at yourself, right? I mean, patients are so much more educated today than they were even 10 years ago. Um, and I see in the future, the idea of direct to patient information will become a thing. Um, there is no getting around it. Um, what we've got to do today and what Foundation Medicine primarily does today is works with the oncologist to inform the patient's treatment. But I see that inflection point in the next few years where patients might get information on their cell phone apps, for example, updates of their medical reports on their cell phone apps. One thing that COVID has taught us is telemedicine is here to stay. Okay. Um, in the past, 
and I'll, I will say in the past, because I hope this doesn't stay in the future, is patients did have to come into the hospital to get imaging done, radiographic imaging to know, hey, is my disease stable? Has my disease progressed? Today, you can just have a nurse go to a patient's home and get a blood draw and you can determine, in the future, we will have the ability to determine similar to a radiographic image, just with a blood draw, determine if a patient's disease is stable or if a patient's disease has progressed or, or gone into remission. So if we're now in this space where telemedicine continues to stay on and patients have more, more of um, flexibility in managing their own disease, I can imagine a future state where patients will want to get that information to them on their cell phones. Now, how do we do this in a regulatory way is a very good question. We've <laughs> got to work with regulators. And I will say that, you know, being on the technology front, I say diagnostics is small bio, big tech. Diagnostics is essentially technology. It's, it's less biology, mostly technology. But when we work with regulators, we hope that regulators will catch up with the rapid advances in technology. Machine learning today is a thing. The amount of data we're generating today is enormous. The amount we're learning from data is enormous. We've got to leverage those learnings and get those learnings to patients sooner. But regulators need to help us get there sooner. Um, so there is that aspect of partnering with regulators, and I hope patients will partner with regulators and explain the urgency as well. Regulators need to hear that. Uh, I see a great amount of progress made on the on the therapeutic side. For example, you know you have drugs like anti PD one therapies or checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapies that are now given to patients based on their genomic profile. If you have an alteration in a biology called microsatellite instability irrespective of what cancer you have, you get a checkpoint inhibitor. So that's been a great advance from where we were yesterday, where disease was treated based on whether they were lung cancer or bladder cancer. Today, we're shifting to treating not based on which disease you have, but what molecular fingerprint you have. Um, but the evolution there from a technological perspective still needs to happen. And, and I am an impatient scientist. Um, I, I do feel like we're not going as fast as we could. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I remember hearing uh, Dr. Francis Collins um, one time talking about how, you know, as a lung cancer patient, like a stomach cancer patient might have more in common with you than a lung cancer patient sitting in the next room. So um, we're definitely That's going right. that direction. So um, I love your passion, uh, by the way. I think it's, I think it's awesome. And I, it's a common theme in many of the people that I have on my program is because, you know, those are the kind of, I'm drawn to those kinds of people. So um, uh, another thing I'd like to talk to you about, I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit. Um, I, I've heard you say that one of the things that's uh, important for women in science is sponsorship and mentorship that allows them to identify the opportunities that are right for them. And I'd like to hear you tell me your experience, uh, both at Foundation Medicine, but also earlier in your career. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I think... Um... For women in sciences, and I see this more often than not, and I don't want to see this moving forward, is women tend to fall off the radar, the career path, somewhere between being a scientist and what we call a senior scientist, meaning, you know, just progressed, say, five years out of your PhD, and they just tend to fall off. And I'm trying to understand what it is. There is, of course, this whole aspect of balancing 
you know, your, your career and your family life. But I do think that one big challenge that women have had in the past is that they do not have other women helping pull them up. And that simply was because we didn't have many women in senior leadership positions in the past. And that's changed now. And it's evolved quite a bit now. I myself had uh, both male and female sponsors who really gave me a seat at the table when I was much younger, a seat at a table of senior leaders when I was much younger. And that was just because they believed in me. They believed in what I, my potential, and they really lifted me. Um, at a much earlier stage in my career than perhaps I have seen elsewhere. And so that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about is identifying young talent. There, there is this interesting age of between 30 and 35 for women where you either, if you can make it past that, that age gap, you then made it. So there is something to, to be said about the balance of family life and career life. And if we can make it easier on them, at that early stage in their career and either push them in the right direction or give them a seat at the right table based on what we think they're and, and what our conversations tell us um, are the right opportunities for them. Let's give them the seat at the table and let's give them that opportunity. Um, men tend to ask for opportunities. Uh, women tend to wait for opportunities. And I think uh, as senior women leaders, uh, we've got to push women to grab it as soon as they find it. I love that. You know, I, that's, again, another common theme of people that I've talked to on my show is this idea of mentorship. And I think it's so important. One of the metaphors I, I remember, I don't forget it exactly right, but it's, it's like when, is it when women were rising up, you know, they keep the ladder down or keep the ladder down, you know, so, you know, so you're reaching down to help up the next one behind you. So I think, I think mentorship is super important. So, yeah. And there is a difference between sponsorship and mentorship, you know, mentorship can, um, can be a little more passive than sponsorship where you're actively taking a role in someone's career growth by, you know, by saying, hey, you've got to sit on this team because I think you're the right person for it. Or, hey, you've got to move to this, you know, take this job on or take this role on. That's, that's an active way of pushing someone in a certain direction. And I think, you know, in my own experience, sponsorship helped me a lot, particularly early on in my career. That's fantastic. Thanks for pointing out the difference. That's really, I think that's really important. So uh, it's, it's, we're lucky to have people like you um, in the industry to, you know, to, to help the, you know, the next generation um, of really brilliant people. So I, a couple of the things I want to ask you, well, first of all, one thing I always ask each of my guests um, is that outside of work, you know, what are you passionate about or what is something that maybe people may not know about you? Uh, that's a good question. You know, um, <laughs> My work is my passion, <laughs> you know, um, it does, the thing with science is that it's an all in field, you know, you have to be all in. There are so many aspects, particularly in what I do in oncology, I have to keep up on the drugs that are being developed. I have to keep up on the diagnostics that are being developed. I have to keep up on the science that is evolving. I have to keep up on the needs of the patients that are evolving. I have to keep up on the changing political dynamics of, hey, you know, where is the money going for, for uh, academic uh, clinical oncologist versus a community clinical oncologist? Based on that, you know, as governments change, it has a huge impact, in fact, on 
what gets funded in the sciences. It gets a, it has a huge impact on um, really on patient healthcare. So I have to keep up on so many things that that is my life and that is my passion and that really drives me. So it's it's weird, but my passion is my job in some ways. <laughs> well, you, although you do have twins at home, so I'm sure that keeps uh, you quite busy as well. Uh, yeah, well, you know, um, they let me be. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I do teach them biology. How about that? I love that. I love that. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to finish up here by, you know, um, I have to throw this out to you because I know you live in California, but I noticed that you you got a PhD in biochemical pharmacology from SUNY Buffalo. That's okay. Right. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because my wife uh, is from Batavia, New York, and her parents are from Buffalo. And her father, my father-in-law, rest in peace, um, he got his degree in pharmacology from from you, Buffalo, from SUNY Buffalo. Oh my gosh, that's a And so it's such a connection. So so how you ended up in Buffalo and then made your way to California, but how did you like your time at SUNY Buffalo? It was quite a reverse culture shock for me. You know, I moved from Bombay to Buffalo. Uh, talk about, uh, oh gosh, uh, 90 degree weather, landed straight in minus 10 degree weather. I didn't know what I was doing. But I will say uh, it shaped who I am today. Um, I'm so fortunate to have had that experience in Buffalo. It gave me the time to um, really introspect. You know, I wanted to do neuroscience ever since I was a kid. Uh, understanding memory was a thing that I've, I'd, I'd always wanted to spend my career doing. And that's what I did in, in Buffalo was uh, neuroscience and uh, worked on uh, fruit flies, which fruit flies are really the poster child um, uh, animal models or species to understand genetics. Um, And so that's what I did. And I spent three years sequencing one gene in the fruit fly. And as I was getting done with my PhD thesis, the entire fruit fly genome dropped in this journal called Science, and it shook me. I couldn't believe it, Dave. Here I am sequencing, taking three years to sequence one gene and someone just sequenced the entire genome. And I got so obsessed by it that I said I had to do my postdoctoral education in that lab. It was called the Institute for Genomic Research. They were sequencing the human genome at the time. This was in 1997-ish. Um, And I managed to get a postdoctoral position in that lab. And I switched from fruit flies to human genome, and was really fascinated by this idea of, um, they. so essentially that lab was the one that sequenced the human genome in, as uh, in addition to the Broad Institute. There were two labs that were sequencing the human genome, Tiger or Craig Venter's Institute and um, Celera and uh, the Broad Institute. We, I used to take each of those clones from each of the genes of the human genome and stick it on a glass slide to understand how genomic signal, how genes get turned on and off. And that was my PhD postdoctoral thesis. And to understand if the technology was working, I used to just take these random cancer cell lines and throw them on the slide and see what happened. And that was when my obsession with cancer began, was in 2000 with, with this whole understanding of human genome and 30,000 genes and how the different genes interact with one another in cancer was really what drove me towards cancer. Uh, once that was done, I got done with my postdoctoral fellowship in, in Washington, DC, moved to uh, GlaxoSmithKline and started working on the application of genomics and oncology. 
Um, that then led me to Genentech, which is the pioneer company in drug development and oncology. And that's sort of, uh, I've been in that family for the last 14 years now. And now at Foundation Medicine, much more closer to patients, really passionate about using genomics to inform treatment decisions for patients. I've been doing that for 20 years now. That's awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show. I have to tell you, you are the perfect uh, entree into a, a series of, of interviews that I plan to do in talking about precision medicine and lung cancer. So, so thank you very much for, for being on the program. I, I really enjoyed hearing uh, all about your, your work and your past and your vision for the future. So thanks very much. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for doing this for the community. Awesome. And uh, tune in next week uh, for my next episode. And uh, thanks again, uh, uh, Preeti, for uh, joining me today. Thank you. Take care.